You ever heard that expression, uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter? Most people say I'm a lover, not a fighter. They don't say I'm a fighter, not a lover, right? We usually hear the, hey, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. And uh, it's, a, it's a good, it's a great expression because when I, I hear the words of 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, which is about 15 verses, um, I've, we hear the word love a lot. In fact, you get the word love about 27 times densely packed within these 15 verses. There's another word that you get packed almost the exact same number of times, and that is references to God himself. So in this particular passage alone, we get about, we get over 50 times in 15 verses where we're getting uh, love or where we're getting God all interwoven. First John is not one of those linear books where he goes from point A to point B to point C and you can just follow along the trail. It's more of a circular kind of a thing where he just kind of gets you over and over again. And so even though while we're talking about love, I think First John is kind of a fighter here uh, because I feel like I'm not a violent person. I don't think I am at least. Uh, but uh, I feel like I'm in a boxing ring with 1 John when I read this passage and that he's, he's given me the, the jab of love and then every now and then the hook of God. Love, love, God, love, love, God, and God, love. And it's just like you're getting hit with it over and over and over and over and over. How many times can you say God and love in the same 15 verses? It's so densely packed. What do we do with that? How do you unpack something that is so dense? Apparently, 1 John wants his audience to grab something. And saying it once, apparently, is not enough. It has to be done over and over and over and over and over again. Just like anything that is worthy of learning, we have to have reps again and again and again. And so we are reminded, not only in the first century with John writing uh, the audience that he was writing to, but for us as we read this, this passage, I'm reminded that in the church, in the 21st century, we have a great need for a specific, substantive, and robust theology of love. Any faithful follower of Christ, anyone who calls themselves uh, a worshiper of God, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, a child of God, must necessarily have a good and right and high and mature understanding of what in the world love really is. And part of the reason for that is that in the world we live in, there are all kinds of generic and shallow forms and uses of that word. So what really is love? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, he actually gets to this place where he says that God is love. God is love. We've heard that before, right? But what in the world does that even mean to say that God is love? Is love. What is the context? In the story of God, how do we even get to that point where we actually say that? Now, if you will go back to the time where God rescues, He chooses a people 
through Abraham. And then a few hundred years later, he rescues those people, Israel, out of Egypt. He rescues them from slavery and he pulls them out kind of away from everybody else, all the other nations. He's like, hey, y'all need to get out here in the wilderness. We're going to kind of get, every, get you away from everybody, all those other voices, all those other people. And I want to say something to you. In fact, he says to Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And you will lead them back to this very mountain and you will worship me here. So when Israel comes to the mountain of God, God doesn't say, He's not just sitting there waiting on them to come. You know, man, it's been like three months. How long does it take Moses to get those people out there? And then they show up to the mountains. God, God doesn't say, hey, I just want y'all to know I'm a loving God and I love you. Why not? Why would God's first words, if God truly is love, why would the very first way that he introduces himself to the Israelites not be, well, I'm a God of love? It's a good question. Part of the reason is because Israel does not even have the right frame of mind to know what love is. Israel does not even have, have a right understanding, um, the, the backdrop, if you will, to even be able to grasp what that would even mean. And so God begins the relationship with Israel by saying, I am a holy God. And I only want Moses coming up on this mountain and the rest of you guys need to stay back. Because I am holy, which means I am other, which means that there's nothing you can do like these little pagan gods all over the place. There's nothing you can do to manipulate me to get to do for you what you want me to do. I am other than you. I am different. I am fully self-differentiated. I've got my boundaries. You can't manipulate me. I am holy. I am other and I am good. But for the moment, you need to stay back. For right now, you need to stay away. I will come to you on my terms. I will relate to you on my terms. At this point, you need to learn to have a little bit of what we might call fear of the Lord. And so God thus introduces himself as a holy God. This fear of the Lord throughout the Old Testament actually becomes a good and right response to and way of understanding who God is. F fear of the Lord, you know, fear can have a positive or negative connotation. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they are afraid. What do they do when they're afraid? They hide from God. There's this sense of shame. But fear of the Lord can also be this sense of reverence, this sense of God is other. He's bigger than me. He's, he's worthy of me giving my life over for. You look throughout the Bible, we see fear of the Lord. Often the fear of the Lord is connected to the love of the Lord. Most often in the Bible where it talks about fearing God, it's connected to loving neighbor. Most often in the Bible where it's talking about fearing God, it's as opposed to fearing people. Fearing God has to do with doing something well, to do something right, to do something just. Those who fear God in the Bible are those who do God's will. Those who fear God in the Bible are those who obey His commands. So God sets himself up this way. Now, 
Love is also there all along. You can see very early on in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God says, look, don't bow down to these other gods because I'm a jealous God. I want you for myself. Even though I'm telling you to stay away, I also want you to know that I want you. I've adopted you. I've claimed you as my own. You are my people. And I will be loyal and faithful to you as long as time exists. And it says that he shows his steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So from the very beginning, there was this love element in a people's relationship with God, particularly the community as a whole. But that love had this backdrop of God's holiness. The fullness of God's love, of course, gets revealed more and more later on. We, we see this through hindsight. That while Israel related to God kind of in a corporate sense, this man named Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus Himself, according to 1 John 4, 9, says, In this the love of God is made manifest among us, love revealed to us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is love personified. He is love with a face, love with a body. The crucifixion is the most specific and greatest act of love in human history. God in Jesus Christ given His life for you and me. Propitiation. It's a fancy word. Basically, it means atoning sacrifice. Giving this sense that, that we needed, we were not in right standing with this holy God. That we needed to be made right with Him. That, that something was off in our relationship with Him. And, and the status of the relationship itself was broken. There was a need for us to be reconciled to God. So that that relationship could be in good standing again. God sends His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that when we place our faith and trust in His Son, we are made right with God. And when we are made right with a holy God, everything, everything is on track. But here's the challenge for us today. Many people today in our world don't even think they need God's forgiveness. As Paul would say, quoting Psalm 36, he would say, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so it's not enough just to go around saying, Well, God loves you. Well, God loves you. Well, God loves you. Well, God loves you. Internet man. God loves us all, doesn't He? That's not enough because that's not a specific kind of love. C.S. Lewis recognized this 75 years ago. He argued that when the gospel first broke out, across the Roman Empire, there was kind of this backdrop of beliefs that everybody shared. 
You basically had three kinds of people. You had Jews, you had Judaizing Gentiles, or, and you had pagans. But all three of those groups of people believed in the supernatural. They were all conscious of sin. They all feared divine judgment. Each, offered, each, each of those belief systems offered some kind of like personal release and purification. Every one of them believed that the world used to be better than it is in the present for them. But Lewis argued then in 1946, and you could still say that all the much more today, that the average person today really doesn't share a lot of these marks. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, I sometimes wonder whether we shall not have to reconvert men to real paganism as a preliminary to converting them to Christianity. That, that, that we've got to get this, some of these backdrop beliefs kind of in place before people even are ready to come to a true and right understanding of God. I don't know if C.S. Lewis was, was really thinking that or if he was just you know, throwing that out there just to get us to thinking about it. But it shows that the world, the, the, the backdrop of the world theology is very different. So when 1 John says God is love, what that means for them, him might mean something than, than the audience of 21st century people in Lubbock, Texas, America might understand that to mean today. One of the prevailing theologies that has kind of overtaken a lot of people in the church is what has been coined as moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Basically, Moral therapeutic deism is this. God is there, but he's kind of distant. He's just kind of there. He's, he's not really involved in, in everyday things unless you need him to be. He's therapeutic in the sense that if I need God, he will come and be with me. If I go to the hospital, I'm praying to God. If I need God to, to help me to, to, to do something at work, then I pray to God and he will help me. And then, of course, God wants us all to be nice to each other. And that's kind of the generic moral, that, that's really what moral therapeutic deism is. That's the theology that says, well, God, God's a little bit distant, but he wants us to be nice and he helps us when we can. Other than that, we can do whatever we want. We, can, we, we know how to make society the better place. We know how to do what we want to do, that kind of a thing. Now, this is not a God. This, this theology points to a God, ultimately, that doesn't really care about justice. It's not a God who really defends the widow and the orphan, or whatever the equivalent of that would be today. It's not a jealous God who wants a relationship with his church or with us. It's not even a holy God. This is just an impotent God. A God who doesn't have the ability to give life. A God who is really the culmination of what we think we want. It's inaccurate theology. It comes from this place where we, we may want what we understand love to be, but kind of pushing back what we think holiness is. And it comes from this false understanding of the relationship of love and holiness. If you think God's 
holiness and God's love are competing against each other. Like God's holiness is over here and his love is over here. And we say, well, God is a holy God, but he's also a loving God. And you have to like make a choice. You know, we're going to be 50-50 holy love. Are we going to be like 60 holy, 40 love or 70-30, you know, love, holiness. Then we have it wrong in our mind. We, we've got love and holiness pitted against each other. It's, it's not that way. It's really the more you understand and grow in God's holiness, the more you understand his love. And the more you understand God's love, the more you understand his holiness. They go together. Moral therapeutic deism tends to keep God's holiness kind of out of the equation. And therefore, what it does is it keeps love at a a very low level, generic level. There are other inaccurate theologies out there. One is a theology that kind of has God as uncaring. Maybe God allows too much injustice to happen in the world. Look around and see all the bad stuff. Like, well, God really can't care about us. He really can't care about me. How could there be a loving God with all this stuff happening in the world? This is the person who takes all the problems of the world as they judge them and see them and they throw it in God's face and often walk away from Him altogether. Such a person might have some sound arguments in their reasoning. But the problem is, is that knowing God is not merely an intellectual exercise where we can sit on the sidelines and be the judge of what is good and right. There's only one way to really know God. And that's to jump in the ring. In a relationship where we put our lives before Him. The only way that we can truly know the character of God, His love and His holiness, is through the avenue of worship. The only way that we can rightly know God is through the portal of faith. Anything else is just sitting on the sidelines, not willing to jump in. God is holy. God is love. It should be a scary thing to jump in the ring with God. But God is a lover and a fighter. When God wrestles with Jacob at Genesis chapter 33, he's all alone with him and he wrestles all night long and God even like pulls his hip out of the joint. And Jacob says, and, and, and God says, hey, let me go. You know, God's like, it's like a, a parent who tells his kid, okay, I give up. Let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then God renames Jacob. Israel. Which became the namesake for the very people that God chose to redeem. Israel is Hebrew for one who wrestles with God. A lover and a fighter. It's only when you get in the ring. It's only when you have faith. It's only when you worship that you can rightly understand God.
And so when we gather here, we open up the Scriptures, we partake in the Holy Communion, when we preach and teach the Word of God, when we sing songs that give glory to who God is, these are ways of us getting involved. We're not just attending a service. We're not just listening. We are actively engaging. That's the goal. That's the design. We're wrestling. Wrestling's not always easy. Boxing, if you will, is not always fun. Getting pounded with love and God and uh, 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 uh. And so, my friends, I want to invite you to consider how much of God's holiness do you understand? How much of a sense of that? When you wake up in the morning, do you, do you believe, I, I am in the presence of a mighty and holy God? And yet, I'm also in the presence of a, of a God who gave His Son for us, for me who poured out His Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who have faith in Him. It's not a one or the other. It is a both and all the way. I think a lot of us may need a little more fear in our lives. It's kind of funny. For a world that doesn't really fear God all that much, we sure find ourselves afraid of a lot of other things. Fears. First cousin anxiety or maybe brother anxiety, those go together. We live in one of the most anxious cultures in the history of the world. And that does something to people. That messes with people. So instead of fearing God, we find ourselves fearing circumstances, fearing for ourselves, fearing for our lives, fearing for our reputation, fearing for those we know. But maybe we need a different kind of fear, the fear of the Lord, a reverence for God. And as, as you walk in that journey of fearing God, God will begin to, to show you that, that fearing God isn't just being afraid of God, but that in that journey, He wants to get to know you more and more and more. And he wants, as, as that fear rightly frames our understanding of him, he begins to pour his love into our hearts till we could actually come to the place where we can say, perfect love cast out all fear. So fear is not something to be avoided. It's, it's through fear, fear, uh, a good fear of a holy God, that we experience the love of God. And then we come to this place where 1 John says something really crazy. It says, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In verse 17, he says, By this is love perfected with us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So consider your own theology today. Is the fear of the Lord, 
Is that in your, is that in your vocabulary? Is that in your wheelhouse? Is that in your heart and your mind? Don't go around that. Embrace it. Embrace it. And walk right through it. Because that's where God will meet us. When we humble ourselves, we bow down, we give Him our hearts, and then He will give us His Spirit in measure beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. May He do with our hearts and our minds today what He needs to do as we worship Him.